Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. I have the the, the, the honor and the pleasure today of speaking uh, with Dr. Brenda Beck, uh, a highly seasoned scholar uh, in our field. Um, she is affiliated with the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus in the Department of Anthropology. Uh, Brenda, it's it's fantastic having you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yes, and we're talking about a, a, a book that's almost finished, but much like my object of study, uh, it, it, it is a Purana. The, its publication is part of a greater Puranic corpus of backstories, and then it's about an epic story indeed. The, the book is called Land of the Golden River, and it will soon be out within a month or so from Friesen Press in Victoria. What is Land of the Golden River about? It's a huge uh, epic story uh, told by bards who are itinerant singers in the Kongu area of Tamil Nadu. And one can say that because these bards and the whole area was never really the focus of a kingdom, the famous kingdoms in South India, Cholachera and Pandya, they warred over the Kongu area to a certain extent, but no one line of kings ever controlled it for any substantial period of time. And that's all a benefit in a way. It's given them an independence uh, from a particular kind of uh, lineal heritage, uh, but it's also given this area <clears throat> a kind of inferior, inferiority complex in the sense that other people say, well, you never have kings. You're in this remote area or upland, whereas our, all our famous heritage comes from the coastal areas, which, of course, the Tamils were traders. And so they used a lot of boats and uh, brought in lots of things from other areas. But uh, this inland area always remained a little bit remote. So it has its own epic story, which is virtually unknown outside this area. And it's very uh, rich and very interesting. And it is a, a statement by the people of this region. Look at us. We also have a great heritage. We have heroes. We have uh, much to be proud of. And here is our story. And so Land of the Golden River tells that story. And it comes from the name that the poets give the story, and when they sing songs, they talk about Pony Valanaru. Pony is a name for the Kaveri River, and it means golden. And the Kaveri River runs right through the center of the Congo area, and it is a defining feature of it. Water especially being greatly prized because this is a relatively dry upland area. So it is their uh, understanding of the beauty and the power and the pride of the people who live in the land of the Golden River. So this narrative, so you're studying this 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 legend of the of, of Ponivala. I probably am not pronouncing that correctly. That's so. nice, perfect. Um, um, might one consider this something along the lines of a, 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 a modern regional Purana? Like, how would we think of this in terms of type of text? I suppose you could call it a Purana because, as you said in the introduction, it, it brings in a wealth of richness in terms of mythology, in terms of sociology. Um, <clears throat> but 
It is not modern. It actually, I believe, is very ancient. Uh, probably, we don't know much about its history because it's an oral epic. It's never had a an authoritative text of any kind. And it's also told in a colloquial way. Uh, it's It's literature for the people by the people as opposed to something literary and classical. But as I try to show in a, another book that's coming out with the University of Toronto Press, it has very ancient roots. It Basically, a lot of it goes back to Babylonia, as far as I can tell. A lot of links to Babylonia. Also, some possible links to the Indus Valley traditions, of course, because it is a Hindu story. And also, as I talk about in that book coming out with the University of Toronto Press, uh, it has... Uh, visually and symbolically, the same kind of structure that uh, F. Uh, D. K. Bosch describes for the great Borodur temple in central Java, which is, of course, a great Hindu temple. And so it, it stretches all over in terms of uh, roots that feed it. And to me, that's not surprising because... Uh, as I mentioned, the, the, all three of the great Tamil kingdoms were trading kingdoms, and they, they relied on their boats and their uh, international <laughs> travels uh, to the Mediterranean, to Babylonia, and to uh, Southeast Asia, as well as, of course, uh, influences from North India. So th- this is really a fascinating object of study in that you are studying a, a, a common narrative that's preserved in oral performative culture. Yes. And so, so really and truly, uh, although this is conjecture, in many ways, you are witnessing what I think of as what the Puranas were before they were written down as Sanskrit texts. Right. So this is a fascinating opportunity. Tell us a little bit about then what do you study or do you do you attend performances? Do you um, interview people? Like what was your method and data? Well, it was initially an accident, uh, as many good things are, a serendipity. Perhaps not <laughs> an accident. <laughs> not an accident in, in that sense. No, an accident in, in a serendipitous sense of discover, true discovery. I was living in a, a relatively remote village at the time in uh, this land of Kongunadu and just getting adjusted. I'd been there uh, two or three months and was just discovering that the full moon time was the most interesting time of the month because people would be out and about and celebrating things uh, in the hours of the night. And I heard drumming. And I said to the woman who I was living with, who was essentially my cook and assistant, uh, who knew absolutely no English, but we, I was learning to communicate with her in Tamil. And I said, uh, what's that? And she said, come with me, we'll go have a look. And so we went out to what was essentially the village square, the village common. And there were two men singing and a huge group of local residents sitting around listening, enwrapped by the songs, and they had one small hand drum called an udakai, which is what was used by the singer, and also one tiny pair of finger cymbals made of brass. So they had those two sounds, the drum, the brass cymbal, and then the song of the singer, 
senior man, probably in his 70s, late 70s maybe, and an assistant, a uh, younger singer, uh, maybe in his 50s, who helped him. And I thought, oh, here's an interesting opportunity. Maybe I can learn something about local traditions by recording this story. I had no intention of studying an epic story at that point. I was a so- basically a social anthropologist looking at social structure. But I thought stories can be revealing, and um, why don't I tape record it? Unfortunately, I did have a good quality tape recorder. I didn't have any video cameras. This was before video cameras were useful. Uh, but uh, I decided to tape record it, and I asked permission from the singer. And uh, the singers, they were quite enthusiastic, and so was the audience. They said, sure. So then I asked, what story would you like to tell? And they said, the legend of Ponyvala. And people said, yes, yes, let's hear that. I imagined it was a story of maybe a half hour or so. I got one tape out and got ready to record. And the singers went on and on uh, nearly till midnight. And then they said, well, that's enough for tonight. We'll be back tomorrow night to continue. Well, in the end, it took 18 nights, took all my tapes. And uh, it was about 38 hours of live performance uh, that I tape recorded. And I knew at that point that I had something very exciting and interesting. So that's that is, discovered it. And it, it, I became a folklorist and a specialist in, in uh, folk epics as a result of that uh, serendipitous discovery. So, so many times it seems the objects of our study, they choose us yes. <laughs> through serendipity. Uh, <laughs> uh, I certainly never envisioned myself studying the Devi Mahatma, even once I was enthralled with Sanskrit narrative. Uh, but here we are. Um, what a rich opportunity to experience and take in uh, this performance uh, and, and record and think about and write about this story that it's it's dramatizing now i need Um, to just uh, continue the story a little bit i wanted to learn the story but i had 38 hours of tape and i didn't want to scrub the tapes going back and forth listening listening getting help with them um because i knew i had something valuable and this was these tapes you know i wanted to make sure they were preserved so i thought of Calling the bard, who was the uh, uncle of uh, someone who lived in the village, and uh, asking him to come and dictate the story. And I had an assistant, the son of the woman who I was living with, uh, who had third grade education and and was enthusiastic and said, well, I can write it down if uh, he will dictate it. So he agreed and he came and we started the project of dictation. And I told him over and over again, please, please tell it exactly like you performed it. I want the same exact story. And he said, yes, of course, of course, I'm telling you exactly the same story. But <laughs> in the end, after I had the, the transcription of his dictation and I was able to compare it with the uh, tape recording, of course, there were huge differences. And that's the subject of my book from 1982, which compares those two versions and a couple of other uh, bits and pieces I was able to collect. And there were many, many interesting differences. But the book, The Land uh, 
of the Golden River is uh, a translation of that dictation. I chose the dictation over the performance, but one, because it's shorter and it was already took two volumes to tell, but also because it's a little better organized. It's a little more logical and thoughtful because he was sitting there, he would, he would sing a couple of lines and then the scribe had to write them down. And he had time while he was waiting for each word to be written down to think about the next set of lines. And so he organized it a little bit. It's the same story, no major differences in the content, but the style and the way that it is told is significantly different. And that's the subject of the book from 1982, which you can Google online. It's available for free. I can't quite convey how, how, how rich uh, I find what you're describing because there's so many directions in which I can take the question. Like <laughs> questions, questions that come to mind are, <laughs> um, what is the essential story? What are its essential features? Uh, does it change that much from telling to telling? Like the story of Rama, right? I mean, I mean, Rama always renounces on his coronation day. That's inextricable from the, the fabric of the narrative. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's lots of garnish. There's lots of side dishes. Um, what is the I core story? And essentially the same, um, if you compare it in that way with the Ramayana. Um, it varies a little bit politically, if you want to use that word, depending on the audience, the, these bards are, are shrewd and well-experienced uh, men who know what the local issues are. And because the story mentions castes and, and conflicts between different communities, they're judicious in how they describe those conflicts, uh, depending on who's in the audience. But the basic concept that there was a conflict, that certainly is stable across versions. Well, it shows the dynamism of such stories and the ways in which, the ways in which they were uh, potentially um, 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 authored or, or engineered so as to comment on the dynamism of culture. Right? They're they're made to be applied. They're they're the they're made to 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 inspire variations. That's the very purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, what can you? I realize we don't have you know twenty hours. But could you indicate the, the, the bare-bones essence of what the story is about? Well, I'll mention several different ways of defining the bare-bones. Uh, one is to say it's about an immigrant family of nine brothers who were backed by the Chola king, And he sent them upstream, up the Calvary River, into this relatively unknown uh, and underdeveloped area called Kongu, and said, go there, take your plows, and start plowing and create some nice rich fields. And then, of course, uh, you know, send the produce down to us. It will be be helpful and pay us some taxes along the way. And so it is a story of immigrants who came into the Kongu area, much like uh, pioneers came from... uh, the British Isles, and from France to uh, North America to try to begin uh, peasant agriculture in the face of local residents, of First Peoples, who resisted that uh, change of their whole lifestyle. And, the cut, of course, the cutting of trees, which is involved in starting plow agriculture. Well, that's one way of 
thinking about the story, which makes it very relevant to North America. Also, the fact that the immigrants adjust. And there's three generations in the story, the grandfather, who's the initial pioneer, and uh, then his son, who becomes a wealthy um, man. Well, I can't say landowner because land wasn't so much owned as it was dominated and controlled at the time. There were registries that took in, you know, names of owners. But uh, the whole economic picture shifted as the fields became plowed and opened up and he became a major um, personality linked to the Chola king who controlled local land. And then there's a third generation, his sons, who are twins, and that's very significant to make sure I come back to that. And they essentially take the same attitude that lots of immigrants to North America take. Oh, you know, okay, so my ancestors were pioneers and, you know, they lived a primitive life. But I am really now a member of this region and I want to do something different. And so the two sons who are grandsons of the initial pioneer want to become uh, warriors and, you know, proud, strong men who will be able to control the region, not because they uh, control the farming. They have other people to do the farm work. They want to be, uh, you know, raised up. And there's also, I think, the Kshatriya theme here. The, the farmers were not uh, one of the twice-born castes, but now they aspire to that. And they actually, when they go to war, they put on a thread which kind of uh, expresses their <laughs> desire to move up into the twice-born category, and the, especially the Kshatriya uh, category. So that's another way to see the story as uh, the change in, in immigrants over three generations and how they adjust and uh, take on a new sense of independence by the third generation. Uh, then there's some other uh, themes as well, which are important. The, the gods and the goddesses are very intricately involved in the story, and that's important. Uh, we can come back to that. But also, uh, in addition to the artisans who they initially encounter, who are kind of, we can say, sophisticated first peoples, who are craftspeople, they trade with the uh, carts and caravans that are passing through the area. But behind them, in the shadows, in the hills, which surround this area, which is geographically very distinct, it's kind of an alluvial upland bowl, surrounded by hills and mountains, live the Vectovas. And the Vectovas are an Aboriginal community who were basically hunters. And they stay in the shadows for quite a while and watch what's happening. But gradually they come out and they become the... Uh, antagonists who uh, resist the farmers. And they have a very important animal, uh, call it a mascot, call it a symbol, whatever. He's a huge wild boar. He's said, uh, in exaggeration, of course, to be uh, 40 feet high and 60 feet long. And he's, he's dark black. He has uh, red, uh, threatening eyes, and of course, a huge set of tusks. And he defends the Aboriginal uh, First Peoples who live in the hills. And so that's the conflict that gradually grows and is very important at the end of the story. And that has, well, that's what actually led me to Babylonia, <clears throat> because I kept looking for wild boar, wild boar, where else in 
Indian traditions do I find wild boar? And there's not much that I've been able to find, with the exception of Varaha, a version of uh, Vishnu, uh, who is a, interesting in relation to the story and has some significance. But I, I don't think we can say that the wild boar in the story is Varaha, because he's eventually uh, conquered by Vishnu. And so it, <laughs> if, it's, if he's Vishnu, Vishnu is conquering himself. He's, he's some kind of antidote or, or counterbalance to Vishnu. You said to remind you about the significance of the twins. Why are the twins important in the story? Thank you for reminding me. They're very important. Um, I I know how to pay attention to a story. (laughs) (laughs) So the twins are the two heroes after which many people know the story. Ponar Shankar uh, are the names of the twins. And they're very different. Uh, Very much like um, Mitra and Varuna say in uh, ancient uh, uh, material from Babylonia from, and uh, the Iranian traditions as well. And they, they always counterbalance one another. <clears throat> and interestingly, the song, the, the story is uh, told in three formats. When the bards perform, they um, have conversations uh, where they take on the voices of the characters. There's dictation where the bard will say, and now this happened and that happened in a descriptive way. And the third element in the story are songs where, and these songs are very beautiful. They're very poetic. And there are lots of songs about the rule and the power that these two brothers had over the kingdom. And in those songs, only one brother is featured, and that's the elder brother, Ponar, who is wise and patient and empathetic and and, uh, helpful. And then his brother is featured more in the confrontations and the warlike scenes because he's always wanting to get out there, be aggressive and, you know, confront the enemy. So there's a balance, a very significant balance between these two forms of being a ruler. And I I believe that goes way back. I think, Raj, I've already told you, I think that uh, they are a reflection of the Asvins in the uh, Rig Veda. They have uh, connections with the sun and with the idea of, as sons of the sun, uh, being the sun's helpers and assistants. Um, But there's also this very important duality. And it's a, a way of discussing kingship itself, a way of saying that, good kings need to have both these elements. They need to be empathetic and, and wise and, and restrained, but at other times they need to be violent and strong in order to maintain their power. And so it's so you can talk about the bones of the story being a, a, from this additional perspective that it is a long kind of essay on the nature of kingship. The the um, the dichotomy or the tension that you 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 touch on strikes me as extremely important to the fabric of the story and its themes, and it's uh, without analyzing the story because I'll leave that to you. It, it's um, the 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 analog that comes to mind immediately to me 
is the, the Hindu goddess or the faces of the goddess or this idea of uh, Ugra and Saumya, uh, fierce and uh, benevolent, you know, the new and the full moon. Uh, recently, I had the good pleasure of organizing mm-hmm. an online weekend tour at the OCHS, the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, at which um, uh, 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 Dr. Beck was able to participate. That was a couple weeks ago. Um, it was fairly well attended. I made the mistake of um, uh, of of of, of, of of running it uh, on the weekend of the full moon. So, of course, uh, related to your story, there's always lots going on in the Hindu world <laughs> under the auspices of a brimming moon. Nevertheless, it was well attended uh, and it really gave us a chance to explore these many faces of the goddess. And in some talks, there was this, well, is she Saumya, is she Ugra, is she both, which is real. Um, and th- that dichotomy to me, it strikes me as very much related to the dichotomy in the um, modes of kingship that you're describing. And in the, so? in the modes of goddesses, that they're, the goddesses are very interesting in this story. They're basically um, three forms of the goddess on earth, all of whom are expressions of one a goddess in the sky, uh, who is Parvati. Significantly, the story begins with Parvati creating the nine first men. So right away, the goddess is given primacy there as the creatrix and then the three goddesses on the ground, so to speak, in the story. Uh, one is essentially a representation of Parvati herself. And she's the goddess who is related to the region of Ponivala. But then there are the in-laws who in Tamil tradition are always uh, a separate group, uh, although they're, they're intermarried, of course. You have the in-laws, they have their own territory. And the in-laws in this story have a version of Durga as their goddess. And then there are these Vektavas who live in the hills uh, who have Kali as their goddess. And also uh, there's some references to Kotravai, the ancient, ancient uh, goddess of the forest. So we have these three dimensions, if you like, expressed of the goddess and her behavioral traits in the story. And and also the women in the story itself, the wives of the male lineage are very powerful and they are each in their own right, um, especially in the last two generations, I believe uh, expressions of the goddess on earth kind of incorporated or absorbed into the human uh, domain. Then we have, I mustn't forget to mention, two gods, also equally important and very interesting because they're Vishnu and Shiva. And although Vishnu and Shiva are known as, of course, you know, somewhat um, conflicting uh, traditions in in Hindu thought, in Tamil Nadu, they are brothers-in-law. And they are very much brothers-in-law in this story. And that means uh, the same kind of relationship that the twins have. They are, you know, there is some competition, there's some joking, there's some uh, awkward moments, but there's also a collaboration and understanding between them. And uh, very interestingly, as, as is uh, very suitable for a Hindu tradition, Vishnu appears in every episode, and I've divided the story into 26 episodes, sometimes two or three times in one episode. He's always trying to be helpful. He's trying to uh, help the uh, heroes along uh, in the various challenges they face. Uh, but interestingly, in the very end, 
he switches sides. When the heroes are in conflict with the Vetuvas, he secretly switches sides and promotes the Vetuva perspective. And so in the end, when everyone essentially dies and there's the, the beginning of a new yuga about to start, one can say that that importance of the Aboriginal or forest peoples is emphasized and Vishnu recognizes at the end, we must always have the forest. It's the magical place. It's the place where recreation begins. And so there's that very interesting kind of shift uh, to rebalance things at the very end. But Vishnu is always there, very active. Shiva is there in the background. We see him only rarely, and he's quite severe. He's usually meditating uh, and doesn't want to be disturbed, or else he's in his council chambers giving um, edicts about you know how long people will live, uh, when they must die, and also uh, giving both boons and curses to people on earth. So the, their personalities are very, very different, and they balance each other out. Now you preempt uh, my next question in talking in mentioning that you divide the story in 26 parts. Can you tell us a little bit about the structure of, of the book and what it is the book is doing? Um, well, the 26 parts, that, that has come from the next step. After I translated and, and published the translation in 1992, uh, and began to think about how can I really share this story because it was still very much unknown, and yet I knew it was so rich. And uh, because I had a, as a partner uh, someone who was very familiar with production, he worked for the CBC, uh, we decided that it would be feasible to animate the story. And so I spent a number of years uh, working with a wonderful folk artist who's the grandson of one of the story singers, not, not the ones that I tape recorded, but related singers. He's also the son of a local uh, non-Brahmin temple priest. So he is seeped in this tradition. He used to sit on his grandfather's knee and listen to the story as a very young boy, as his grandfather sang it over and over again. So when I found him and said, would you be willing to work with me to animate the story? He agreed. And it was a, like a, finding a golden treasure. He's been terrific. He now lives in Toronto and he works for a large animation uh, firm in Toronto. But we still work together. And through him, and then we hired a number of local high school students to help him because he couldn't do it all by himself, 20 uh Six hours of animation is a lot of animation. But uh, we managed to do it, and uh, that was very exciting. And that, to produce animation and then get it broadcast, which was our goal at the time, you have to uh, follow broadcast standards, and they had to be half-hour episodes in order to fit broadcast schedules. So that's how I came to divide the story into 26 parts. That's not a natural thing coming from my collection of the story, but my need to make it fit a broadcast pattern. After I published the translation, I had this passion to share the story, and it wasn't happening fast enough and across a broad enough audience to be satisfying. So I thought maybe through animation, 
uh, I can give this story a life that will be of interest to a much broader audience. And so we, after several years and a, a staff of uh, animators here uh, in my home, which is where it happened, um, we came up finally with the 26 episodes. And then, because with another serendipitous kind of event, a recommendation that we do it in high def, uh, we had very sharp images. And so, because animation has so many images per second, <clears throat> I was able to quite easily create graphic novels, which just pulled um, individual images from the animation and put them organized on paper in print form in in a graphic novel style where the characters have these little balloons where they, they speak and there's a few comments and so on on the edges. Uh, that uh, then created just, a, a, say, a year or two after the animation, a set of graphic novels. And <clears throat> the graphic novels are very useful, I think, in teaching because you can actually pause on a page and look at the illustration in depth as opposed to the animation where new images are always flying past your eyes on the screen. So they have different purposes. The animation is, is richer and more detailed than the graphic novel, but the graphic novel uh, does give you the ability, especially if you're trying to teach the story, <clears throat> to go back and forth and look at different ways that Vishnu is illustrated in different episodes or whatever topic it is you want to take on. And then the original translation went uh, seriously out of print and became unavailable unless you want to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for some uh, ancient uh, <laughs> scrappy version that got found somewhere. Uh, it was out of print. So I've decided to reprint it, and that's what's coming out uh, in, uh, say, in about two months uh, from Victoria, British Columbia, the Friesen Press. So clearly you've spent a bunch of time um, working on this story. Yes, a um, lot of time. What would you, I'm sure this is a, a chapter or book in and of itself, but could you give us a sense of the significance of the draw? Why is this story so important? It's important for many reasons, but I think it's fair to say that the reason that has driven me most <clears throat> is that folk traditions everywhere, but especially in India, are not highly valued. They're considered secondary, they're considered uh, low uh, culture, and people kind of say, oh, you know, well, all right, so there's a local story. But the great stories are the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, <clears throat> and we have the, these great Sanskrit texts. Let's focus on those. And what I have been passionate to say is look at the folk understanding of things. There's so many new insights, so many fresh ways of looking that come from the folk roots. And I've been involved in establishing what we hope will soon be a new chair in Tamil studies at the University of Toronto, uh, where I have been <clears throat> advocating with a great uh, insistence that we not just focus on classical Tamil, but we also focus on Tamil folk traditions because they are so fresh and so little known and yet so rich. And then I can go on forever to talk about 
the various aspects of this richness. Um, but one thing that has come to me fairly recently are, are the deeper, more symbolic levels of the story, which have come from living with it for so many years and also having seen the wonderful illustrations that my animator has developed. And one of them is the importance of rain and of cows, that the story is about farmers and it's in a dry region. And so the rains and the coming of the rains is very important. And you see that in the songs. The songs talk about the beneficent rain. And then the cows, the beautiful cows. And of course, the cows flourish and fatten after the rains because the fodder is so much better for them. And then also because the cows are metaphors for people, females in the sense of cow is female, is a common description for a woman, and a bull uh, is a sense of a male cow is a common description of a, uh, you know, brave, strong, uh, aggressive male. And so you get that uh, interrelationship in the, on a symbolic level of, uh, well, first of all, the sun, which energizes the plants but dries things out, lifts the water into the sky, and then allows the great rains to fall back. And it's interesting that in all the um, generations of the story, in one way or another, the characters uh, come from the sky. They uh, essentially are generated and essentially formed in the sky, and then somehow or other they drop down and become part of life on Earth. So that interaction between sky and Earth is very central. And then there's a third element, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about, underground. And of course, there's also a lot of imagery of tunnels and caves and uh, water underground. So it's a a rich uh, story geography in terms not only of the breadth across the land, but also the levels of of the story from the sky right down to the underground. That's uh, fascinating and rich. Uh, well, clearly, um, clearly, you uh, aren't collecting any dust these days with all the <laughs> you're pumping uh, pumping out. Uh, so, what um, uh, as we close uh, this podcast? What so? What are you currently working on? I'm uh, working on the last bits of um, symbology that are going to be incorporated in the the book coming out with the University of Toronto Press. But I'm also, I have this whole dimension which is related to my passion to spread the story, to get it into schools. And I think especially for the Tamils who live in the Toronto area, to for the kids from those families to understand that their own history, their own tradition has a great story that they can feel proud of is an important thing that can be taught in the schools. And so I'm working on ways in which the story can be linked at different levels in the school system uh, to uh, teaching. And I'll just read you, I've come up with uh, a whole list of things that I think are important that can be taught by both elementary and secondary school teachers, let let alone university. Uh, There are things like respecting the earth, the importance of the, the goddess as a representative of the earth, 
uh, fence building. There's a long story about fence building and people, uh, cows actually trying to jump the fence and dying, which links very nicely to uh, the issues the U.S. has had on its southern border with fencing and the immigrants from uh, south trying to climb over those fences. So that's a very relevant uh, theme in the story. There's a lot of uh, seeking to become a better person because the uh, mother of the heroes has been cursed and she's barren because of this fence issue, which came, came in earlier. And so she strives, she keeps thinking there's something wrong with her and that she needs to do more and better work in order to become a better person. So you can uh, look at it as striving to be better. There's an interesting episode on suicide, which uh, would be maybe helpful for elder students higher in the high school system, uh, where the heroine, the one who's suffering from barrenness, climbs a pillar and threatens to jump off and say, you know, life is not worthwhile because I'm passionate to have children and I'd never be able to have children. And what's interesting is the way Vishnu approaches her and argues and and persuades her to come down off the pillar and uh, abandon the problem of suicide. And she, what Vishnu does is say, don't think about yourself, help others, build wells, improve the, the, uh, way that fodder is stored for cows, Uh, give feasts, do things for your community. And think of that as your role in life. And when she changes her mentality, then eventually she is able to bear children. So that uh, is a, a very interesting commentary on how to interact with people who are suicidal. Uh, then there's lots of other, there's images of orphans, underdogs, the homeless, there's family violence, there's economic exploitation, there's climate change, there are animal rights, there's issues of charity and giving, there's status inequality, there's the importance of respect for others where if somebody kicks a wild boar and then that engenders a whole episode about the reaction of the boar to being kicked. Uh, there's family bonds. There's a very interesting incident of terrorism in a school, <laughs> literally terrorism in a school, which uh, links, of course, to uh, contemporary issues. There's abuse. There's bullies. There's outcasts. There's refugees. There's scapegoats. There's tree cutting. There's, it's just a wealth of issues that can link to modern teaching. If you take the substories that are embedded in this epic and use them as ways of getting students to think about these problems in our modern context. So I'm going to be developing a whole unit, teaching unit about that. That is absolutely fascinating for so many reasons. Um, it bespeaks um, the power of these narratives uh, to, to, to speak to us uh, generation after generation. Uh, it also really touches on um, something really important to me, which is education, teaching through stories, um, teaching about stories, the power of narrative in the classroom. Um, so this, we, we will definitely have to have you back on the podcast. Um, and we will definitely have to link uh, in the podcast notes all of the various iterations uh, of your work on this legend. Clearly it's it's captivated you and, and it's been the source of great inspiration and industry. 
Uh, and so while we are um, focusing our discussion on the podcast about uh, Land of the Golden River, uh, soon to be out with Friesen Press, um, we'll link the various other articulations of the legend of Ponivella in the podcast notes. Thank you very much for appearing today. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. We'll have you on again. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Brenda Beck uh, of the uh, University of Toronto Scarborough Campus, Scarborough Campus's Department of Anthropology. We've been speaking about her soon-to-be-published book, Land of the Golden River, which is just the latest uh, uh, scholarly iteration of uh, this 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 uh, this rightful obsession with the legend of Ponivala and all that it has to say, and the fact that it has to say so much, being a local folk narrative cherished. Uh, by its tellers and its hearers for generations. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating the power of narrative. Take care.